So you've heard of this weird thing and started going down the rabbit hole on the divine council worldview, this idea that the gods of the Bible are real. And you're thinking, what does this really mean for me? That's exactly what we're going to be talking about in this episode of My Strange Bible. I'm Steve Schramm, here with my buddy, Al. Alex, what's up, man? <laughs> hey, Steve. Uh, it is going well. How are you, my friend? Man, I'm doing so good. I can hardly stand it. It's amazing, really. God's That's why you're sitting me. down. Oh, but um, where's my I need, like, a sound <laughs> machine? That's fantastic. We'll, we'll get we'll get something. <laughs> yes, we'll but get, no, we'll get but something. No, I'm, I am excited to uh, just dig a little bit further into this topic because even though we talked a lot about it last time, uh, I just there is so much more to flesh out. Just even on the basic level, not even getting into the nitty gritty, but just uh, explain a little bit further what we mean by why are there multiple gods in the Bible, and is it sacrilegious to say that there are more gods than just one god? <laughs> so um, I think there'll be yeah. some helpful information here that. Um, that it's just a nice refresher for us and anyone who's new to it to can, can understand a little bit more where we're coming from. Yeah, I, I, yeah, and to kind of like set up this idea, the I want to talk through really like what I'm calling the logic of the Divine Council worldview or the Deuteronomy 32 worldview. Like, what does this mean for Christian theology? Right to your point, like, does that mean that um, that he, you know the Hebrew people were polytheists? Um, does it mean you know, like what does it mean for Jesus? Does it change anything about what he did? And I, I think that if we can think through this, it will help people. And so, yeah, that's what we're gonna kind of do. So, um, why don't we just dive straight into it? Like, let's get right into the meat yep. here and start talking about the first thing. So, um, I think the first thing that we want to cover is this idea. And again, if you are like really new to this, you definitely need to go back and watch our video that we did called yeah, "The sure. Other Gods in the Bible Are Real." Go check that out because that's the, that's the context here. But I wanted to draw a very explicit connection for you to understand what we're talking about. We literally mean that the nations around Israel, Egypt, the different flavors of Canaanite, um, the Babylon, Babylonians, the Assyrians, all of them, they literally worshipped actual spiritual beings who took up like habitation in stone, bronze, and wood, gold, idols like they but they but they weren't worshiping the idol they were worshiping the being yeah and as a simple rehash to go along with that um a lot of times when we do read the bible and we see them worshiping idols we think how stupid and it would be dumb just to get a block of wood and to worship that and and we just think it's odd and so we skip over it and we think those people are stupid but in yeah. fact they created these vessels at to be a habitation or you know a place for these gods to live and exist so that they can worship something actually real not just a block of wood or a hunk of stone yeah yeah that, that's right and so when you look at cultures who worshiped baal right the god called baal or you look at the the god um, that they they used to literally take and, and sacrifice to this god and burn their children. Um, his name was um, Chemosh, right? Um, C H E M O S H, something like that. Okay, Chemosh, Chemosh, Baal, um, Ashtaroth. Okay, these are like. Does, does that mean that that's the name that God gave these spiritual beings? I have no idea. 
Is that the name? Did they give the name to themselves? Did did the actual people just make up that name? I I, I don't know. But what we're trying to say is that when you look at an Ashtaroth or a Baal or or a Chemosh, these names were representative of real divine spiritual beings that <clears throat> were worshipped, and, and these were bad guys. Now that doesn't mean that they were originally bad guys. Mm. Um, I think it could be argued that they were good guys on God's payroll. And again, you'll have to go back to our last episode to kind of get the gist of that, how God disinherited the nations at the Tower of Babel and put him under or put them under the, the care of these other gods. And God's intent for them was for them to be cared for. And if you look at Acts 17, isn't Acts 17 is a fascinating uh, passage where Paul talks about how, how basically how God placed people in the various nations that they were in so that they would eventually find God. And so I think God's original idea was that these beings would care for his people. Um, but what ended up happening is they started accepting the worship and the glory for themselves. And many times we saw the Israelites fall into those same patterns. So, Yeah, and what's a, just a thought that popped in my mind, you saying that, is a lot of these um, gods that were worship started out on God's payroll. And I wonder how many... Um, sought out the worship first, or if after being worshipped by the people, they eventually got suckered into it. Um, just a whole other discussion on its own, but just the the mindset of of how these gods uh, came to be. Uh, yeah. One thing though that unless you have more to talk about the subject, one thing that really is super important to know is that these gods are fundamentally and wholly completely different from the one Most High God. That's right. Yes, this is a key point of, of, of Israelite um, uh, monotheism, right? So monotheism is the idea that there is one God. This is, it's, it's very important that this is not to be taken as uh, polytheism. Polytheism is the view that there are multiple gods equally worthy of worship. That's not the case. It's not even really henotheism okay so henotheism and somebody might want to go to chat gpt and double check me on this okay but i'm but i'm 99 sure what i'm saying is accurate henotheism is the view that there are multiple gods but only one of them is worthy of worship now that's getting closer but it's still not entirely accurate right it it's most mm -hmm. accurate to say hebrew or israelite monotheism and it's the view that that Yahweh the way Dr. Heiser used to say it is that Yahweh is species unique okay so the word we didn't even talk about this I don't think well we very briefly uh, in, I don't in our think last we episode. did yeah so the word Elohim is a it's a term that has to do with location okay it's not an ontological term okay which means that there's no direct essence of being necessarily associated with it. So it, so uh, sometimes we think that because we see the word Elohim and we kind of know, like that's one of those Hebrew words that like we kind of know. And so we're like, oh, Elohim, that's God, right? And so we attach the word Elohim in the Bible to capital G, God. Well, the reality is, is that when you actually survey the word and you look at the word in its various contexts, we see that the word Elohim is used directly to refer to, yes, the God of the Bible, also to these other little G gods. In some cases, we see Elohim referring to um, some figures who were like departed dead people, 
Okay. Yeah. Um, so, so the word Elohim is a is a is a location term. It's a geographic term, and so um, the an Elohim could be any one of those. And so the way that Heiser would say it is that uh, Yahweh is an Elohim, but no other Elohim is like Yahweh. So yeah. logically, based on philosophy, I mean, it, it, there can only be one greatest possible being, and that is the God of the of, of the Bible. Another example, too, just to kind of uh, shift your mind into thinking is anytime, at least growing up where I was, it was always very important to give um, the true God, the capital G, and all yeah. the other false gods, the lower G. Whereas mm-hmm. God or Elohim, like what you just said, references, it's more about a location. Where are these beings located? Are they spiritual or are they in our physical fleshly bodies? Mm-hmm. And it, when referencing something spiritual— it's referred to as gods or Elohim. And so that's very important. Another, I think probably the most important thing is as specific as um, Heiser was on God being, Yahweh being species unique, being the only one, the most high, there are still a lot of people out there that I've seen, and it surprised me, twist his word saying that he believed in multiple I guess Yahweh's in a sense, as clear as he was. So I think it is important for everyone watching this channel that uh, Steve and I do believe in one Yahweh, one the God of the gods. Um, And so that's our position and just want to make that clear. (laughs) Yeah, there is there is one creator God again to use like, you know, language from philosophy. God is a a necessarily existent being okay so god is a what we call a necessary being and then every other being and literally everything else is contingent right so the universe itself is contingent you and me are contingent the other gods are contingent um and again i i always like to try to create a bridge for people because this stuff sounds so weird to people like you need to understand that this goes beyond angels and demons but if you just but if you're a Christian, you already accept the view of angels and demons. So all you need to do is just sort of expand your thinking a little bit about the sort of roles and responsibilities that such angels and demons had. So for example, and we're going to talk about this, this might actually be a good segue into our next thing. So spiritual beings participate in the governance of the world with God. Okay. And you're thinking... Well, that's blasphemous. That's weird. Like, I've never heard that before, so it can't be right. Well, number one, we participate in the governance of the world with God. So if we do, why can't a spiritual being? I mean, let's let's just lay, lay aside the fact that the Bible specifically mentions many examples. Okay, we're going to talk about those, but like, let's just think logically for a minute. If we can take part in God's plan and God can use us, then why can't he use spiritual beings the same way? Okay, that's number one, right? Number two, if we have this idea, we already have a category for Satan, right? The category for Satan is that God created a a perfect world, right? That's what Genesis 1 seems to indicate. God created a world without sin, and yet we have this evil spiritual being, the serpent, who we find out later on is capital S, you know, Satan, right? We have this evil spiritual being that was created good because God created everything good and went bad. <laughs> okay. So, so thinking in those terms, again, we have these other spiritual beings that Yahweh created. He created all of them, both human and divine to participate with him. And some Satan and the fallen angels and some, and obviously humanity as well went bad, right? Turned their back 
on Yahweh. And so there's a, a rescue plan in place, but now we're getting ahead of ourselves. Does that make sense? Yeah, I think it does. And we all accept, if you're a Christian, you basically just accept the fact that, yeah, Satan was there at the beginning, and um, however you want to look at it, fallen angels, demons, whatever, you're familiar with your terminology. Um, there mm -hmm. are evil spirits and evil forces right from the very beginning. Um, and yet after the first couple of chapters of Genesis, until Jesus Christ comes and he casts out demons, we seem to kind of forget that the spiritual world does exist and that there are spiritual um, yeah. beings. And one great example, too, um, again, that, that Heiser provided, is the fact that time and time again, the Old Testament will say um, that Yahweh God is the God of gods. And the example that he provides is, well, if those gods didn't exist, if these spiritual beings didn't get, exist, isn't that just say that God is better is better than nothing? And like he says, you know, a dog is better than nothing. You know, anything is better than nothing. And yeah. so it, it doesn't make sense that the Bible would say time and time again that God, Yahweh, is better than other gods, these other spiritual beings, if they didn't exist. Um, yeah. just, just kind of framing in mind again just the the reality of that situation and, and what's actually um, what actually was true. Yeah, and it's, it's kind of like the point you made last time. Um, you made it kind of in passing, but it's actually really important. Really, the entire, like once you have this framework in mind, the entire Old Testament is ridiculous if you're not mm. looking at this at this, at this this framework because it just looks like this really strange obsession that God has with people worshiping physical objects in, instead of him. And then... And then you have to do really weird stuff when you when you find all these references. And again, it is hard. I, I sympathize because until you see it, you don't know it's there, right? Um, you know, like 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 you don't notice the fact that you've got and and some people have like like the angel of the Lord, right? Okay, the angel of the Lord. Most you know those words are in the Bible, right? And so Christians have long known about him and talked about him and. A lot of times we would call him a Christophany or a or a Theophany, right? So a Christophany would be specifically a a pre-incarnate, you know, an appearance of the pre-incarnate Christ is how people would think about that. Okay, but what they've never really done is been able to look back at the Old Testament and see instances in the text where the angel of the Lord is actually present in the scene, having a conversation with Yahweh God in the scene. Now, this is a Jewish text, monotheism, right? And and here you've got essentially these two gods talking to each <laughs> other who are, in a sense, one and the same. And, and uh, Daniel gets into that a little bit. And this is why Christ was able to look back at these passages and say, yes, like, like I'm this guy, but a lot of the language around that is totally obscured unless you're there. And so, what like the logic piece, the the piece that's missing for people is that is that Christ is the preeminent one. He is he is a son of God, unlike no other. See, there are multiple sons of God again that Hebrew terminology, but there is no other son of God like that son of God, because he is, in a sense, one with Yahweh as well. And, and so there, but the fact of, of, of Jesus actually defeating the forces of evil and, and the powers of evil is like the teeth almost comes out of that. If the powers of evil that were being defeated weren't even real spiritual beings, it was literally just, you know, a, something made up in the minds of, of men. 
like the the biblical story gets so much more depth to it when you're looking at it through this lens. It causes you to actually focus on what's happening rather than skip over it. And That's it really right. adds it's almost if I guess the way to think about it, it, it almost like doubles the amount of content in the Bible. Like it does. you just see so much more um, rather than, oh, you have this important book, this important book, then a bunch of stuff to skip and this filler here. It brings it, it, brings it to life and it's uh, yeah. brings you a whole new aspect when reading it. Well, I realized as I was listening back to it, um, if you happen to check out our last, uh, our previous episode, um, I used this. Uh, sort of analogy of like a, a puzzle and I it was really convoluted mm-hmm. I didn't really explain it really well and I was thinking about it and I think the right way to think about this is if you were looking at a puzzle and then once you had this framework what happened is is that like you know like you ever seen like those apps that have like an endless canvas like you can you can be working on something and then you zoom out and then you see there's all this other canvas mm-hmm. it's like whenever you see this you actually just zoom out and you see that the puzzle that you were looking at you thought it was the full picture, but it's only like half of, of what's actually there. Yeah. And maybe for some Christians, the picture that they have is only like a fourth of what's actually mm-hmm. there. Like this adds a lot more depth and a lot more meaning. So so let's kind of get into some of those like real quick. I, I want to talk through there are some specific examples um, yeah. of spiritual beings actually participating with God in specific ways. So let's just in run through In some weird these. ways too that you might not expect. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, that's right. And again, some of them are actually like, oh, I've seen that before, but like, I I didn't understand that it had this layer of depth to it. So the first one is the the lying spirit in 1 Kings 22. Do you remember this? Yes, it's a great one. Yeah. Yeah. So we have this scenario where there's this this guy, and he's a prophet of Yahweh, and his name is um, Micaiah, and he's he's, uh, talking with... Um, with God and trying to figure out the situation and and there and King Ahab is in the scene and King Ahab never likes what the prophet of God has to say right so Ahab's got <laughs> right. his own prophets he tends to like what his own prophets have to say um, and not so much what the prophet of God um, Micaiah I think I'm saying his name right Micaiah something like that um, has to say and, and so. What happens is you get this weird scene going on where, and I, I might be getting some of the details a little fuzzy, but I think I have it right. You have sort of this weird scene going on where um, Micaiah is like basically seeing this vision, and it's and it's Yahweh in his council. Again, this is First Kings twenty two. You can go read it yourself. Um, it's it's Yahweh in his council, like literally having a deliberation meeting, right? Yep. Yahweh talking to spiritual beings, saying basically who is going to go be a a a deceiving spirit, a lying spirit, and um, in the mouth of Ahab. And this one spirit stands up and says, "I'll do it." You know, I'll go. And then and then Yahweh, the God of the Bible, says to him, "Okay, cool, you go do that." Right? And, and so here you have a a spiritual being, a, a literal a, a gathering of spiritual beings together, volunteering to do different things. One stands mm. up and says, "I'll be the lying spirit in the mouth of Ahab." And then Yahweh, looking at that guy, and said, "Okay, go do that." So now we have two things: we have God using a spiritual being. And we have God seemingly endorsing the spiritual being like lying um, and, yep. and being a false, like a deceiving spirit in the mouth of this king. And so um, I, my advice is not to like try to logic that, like not to try to figure that out. My advice is to like read that passage and just sit with it. And it's like, mm. just realize that it's happening. 
because I promise you've never seen it before. Like most of you have just not sat down, read that passage, and like thought about the implications of what this what this means. It, it means that that God asks spiritual beings to participate with Him. Um, mm-hmm. Okay, so the next one. You want to take this well, one? Uh- or well, you have a just, comment there. Yeah, well, yeah, comment on that. The two things, and there's a lot, obviously, that you can you can take on that, but two things that I really like about it is the fact that um, God allows for the free choice that, you know, he wants us to volunteer and allows us yeah. to do and make decisions how we want to. Now, sometimes he may say no, but I think it's a great example where, um, yeah, someone, you know, said, hey, I- I'm going to do this. And he says, yeah, go for it. And you know, let's, let's, let's see what, see what happens. The other part, and I think is a great example is that's very applicable to our life is we actually get to see, um, Yahweh interact with the sons of God in, in his, um, in his family that's, that's with him right now. And it's a perfect representation of how he wants us to behave, making decisions on our own and while we're here on earth. And then, a sign of what's to come. So I just think it provides a great example for just those two things, but then more as well. Yeah. Oh man, that's no, those are, those are great points. And and again, when you start to look at, at the Bible instead of uh, like, there's a lot of directions you could go with this, but like the basic point I want to make is that God is a King, right? He's the King of Kings and he's the Lord of Lords. So like, if you just start with that framework and you look at the Bible and you, and you take in the language with that thought in mind, it becomes so much more sensible. God mm-hmm. sits on a throne. There are princes who govern and rule under him. Okay. He has a council. He essentially has a court. Like almost think, you know, Sir Arthur, right? The Knights of the Round Table or whatever, you know? Like when you when you think about it, it's like, of course. He has subjects. Of course, mm. God has people who go out and like they're messengers for like it, it's it's not like I don't know, for some reason, like we don't we're not taught to think that way. I wasn't taught to think that way no, in all. church. God as a ruler, as a king. And and in many ways the biblical story is about is about Jesus, right? Taking his rightful seat on the throne as mm-hmm. the, you know, as that king and being sort of that you know, the fact that he's got a human and divine nature at the same time. It's like, it's just so beautiful. The whole story when you actually realize what's happening there. Um, It makes those titles of um, adoration, the King of Kings, Lord of Lords, the, the God above other gods. It actually makes it have substance rather than just reading. Mm -hmm. Oh, that's good. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. hundred percent. All right. So, um, angels, messengers. Yes. Yes, that does happen. <laughs> um, it does happen. Th- to me, this one, even though it's kind of a simple point we're going to cover, is kind of, it was one of the more mind-boggling adjustments because we all think that, I think this the typical Christian thinking is there's God and then there's angels in heaven. And yeah. that's basically it. Whereas when you flip it on its head, uh, yeah, angels do exist, but they exist not necessarily as angels with wings as we think of them, but as a son of God, as an Elohim delivering messages, a message bearer. Yes, exactly right. So um, the word uh, for angel in in Hebrew um, is malak, malak, and the word means messenger, okay? Mm -hmm. So like we normally think of angels as like all spiritual beings, but in reality— 
when angel is mentioned, except for times when you have like the words Malach Yahweh. Okay, that is the angel mm. of the Lord. And as we've already sort of discussed, that is a different figure, right? That is that second Yahweh figure in um, ancient Israelite theology, okay? So, a but otherwise, you have an angel and it's a malach. It's a messenger. It's somebody delivering a message, right? And so what we'll do is we'll look at these other beings like seraphim, cherubim, um, some of these other beings like, like Satan even, mm-hmm. um, the sons of God. We'll look at these different angelic sort of figures in the Old Testament and we'll just call them all angels. And part of the fault here... There's a whole big to do that you could you could go into this, but essentially, the New Testament, following sort of the lead of the Septuagint translators, the the which is the Greek version of the Hebrew Bible, essentially that it basically would be the Bible that Jesus used would, would be the Septuagint, um, uh, the Hebrew Bible that Jesus used, except it was it was in Greek. You, you get what I'm saying? Um, yep. That sort of blurred the lines, and, and and just and refer and it used the Greek word angelos. Angelos, which is angel, to refer to all of these different categories of, of spiritual beings. So we wouldn't realize then, like if we're thinking of everything as an angel and we're putting everything in the same category, we're failing to realize that a malak, uh, an angel, strictly speaking, a malak is just a messenger. A cherubim is a throne guardian. Okay, it has a job. It has a role. These are roles. A seraphim is a there's different ways of thinking about it, but it's basically a singer, right? You'll notice that Seraphim, mm. when they're in the scene, basically their only job is to like sing and praise and give glory to God, right? So there's a reason why the in the um, at the Ark of the Covenant there were two cherubim, right? In that scenario, in the in the in the you know temple and all of that, right? Because those are divine throne guardians. Uh, this is also why there are cherubim placed with flaming swords on the outside of the Garden of Eden. Because mm. guess what? That was the inner sanctum. The Garden of Eden, there's lots of temple imagery and things like that going on in the Garden of Eden. The reason why cherubim were there is because they are in the ancient world, and this is across all cultures, not just the Hebrew you know, culture, but in, in the ancient world, a cherubim is a throne guardian. So these are spiritual beings with different roles, different functions and jobs in God's divine court. Um, Satan, right? So we talked about this a little bit last time. Satan is actually, it's a Hebrew uh, word that the, there's an article in front of the word. It, it's actually the Satan, the Satan. And that word basically means the adversary. And so that was a role. That was a, a mm-hmm. role that, that you know, again, like, was the Satan, was the Satan in Job, which actually that's what we're going to cover next anyway, so we can <laughs> right. just go there. But was the Satan in Job, capital S, Satan, um, you know, the, 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 the person, if you will, right. The being, um, that's up for debate. Uh, Heiser seemed to think that there was not a direct connection there. There are others who even would agree with Heiser on most things, but who actually look at that and say, yeah, he actually Mm -hmm. like, I think there's a good argument for saying that actually was, uh, Satan. I, I don't know. For me, I think it's weird to say that that guy is Satan. The, the reason being, this really seems like a guy who's on God's payroll and mm-hmm. is, and I don't, I don't think just based on what I understand of a biblical worldview, like I, I kind of don't think that, that it makes sense that Satan has direct access to Yahweh in heaven right now. I, 
I could be wrong about that, but I don't think that's true. And the only place I've ever heard someone make an argument for that being true is um, is using using the the figure in Job. And so, if you take that off the table, mm-hmm. I don't think you could look anywhere else in the Bible and say that yeah, Satan has direct access to God. That seems somewhat strange to me. So what I'm what what I'm gonna say doesn't obviously doesn't make it true one way or the other. But I do remember Job's one of my favorite books, and it it just always struck me as odd that Satan approaches God in this way and then ensues. And, uh, and as a, you know, as a kid or teenager, like I wasn't introduced to any of the divine counsel worldview, but I remember reading like those first couple chapters, just like over and over and over. Cause it just did not make sense to me. And yet mm-hmm. this way, I think explains it, um, a lot clearer and, uh, I think it makes sense. So I think I'm kind of in the line with you. Obviously this is not a hill I'm willing to die on, (laughs) but um, I think, I think this perspective does make more sense rather than Satan having direct access, almost like he is welcomed there in a sense. Yeah. Um, Yeah. So yeah. Well, and I think part of the allure of like, if it, if it is capital S like, you know, personal pronoun, like it's that guy, right. Mm -hmm. We get to sort of, um, it's easier for us to deal with. Right, we get to sort of blame Satan That's true. for it. Well, well, he's the one who brought it up to God, right? And even in that scenario, like sort of forgetting that it was God who was like, okay, he's in your hands. Like you have control over this situation. Here's where your limits are. You can't like kill him or whatever. Like there's limits, but like otherwise it's fair game. Go. And and, and it fits to what we uh, read in First Kings too, where, where you have um, the sons of God approaching him on his throne and suggesting different things and offering different things. And so I think it just kind of falls in line with that as well. Well, that's right. And so obviously if, so if it's, if it's the guy, we can blame him. If it's not the guy, it almost feels like it's, it's more of God's fault. So I think that's why maybe people don't want to go there in my view. And again, I'm not God. Thank thank the Lord. Right. I'm not God. (laughs) Um, um, But one of the key like distinctives that I think makes a, a Christian worldview persuasive is that we don't have the mind of God and that um, his ways are higher than our ways. And while we shouldn't use that, I think, as a way of just blanket excusing things, I think that there's clear evidence that though if you were in the shoes of Job, you would think, oh my goodness, how horrific it would be to be that man. I mean, I was just reading it you know, almost in tears as, as I'm, I'm in the book of Job right now. And I'm just like, dude, like I have a family, like I get it. it, it was, in fact, it was almost comical. Like I was reading through it and the way that it's worded is just so, it's so interesting. It's almost like, um, almost like a drama, like a play almost where it's like, it literally says how one servant came in and like was talking about all this calamity. And like the way it puts it, it's literally like before he could even stop talking, the next servant yeah. comes in and he talks about how like all your children were out working in the field is dead. And before he starts talking, the next one comes in and it's just like all piling on. And it, it's a terrible situation. But, but scholars think that Job is potentially one of the earliest written books in the Bible. Okay, so like again, if you're if you, if you have a biblical worldview, you're thinking about Job as some of the f- very first writing, at the beginning of humankind, right, and, and human writing. And so think about every human after that who got to experience, hmm. who, who who gets to look at Job, and his and and the way that God interacts with him, and the example, and and the ultimate reward nobody likes to talk about the end of job where job where all this stuff was restored to him and he had to he got to have a big family and like it it worked out in the end for job because ultimately of his godliness and his faithfulness and and all of that 
um, and, and, and the Lord's promise and, and sovereignty. So look at all the people whose lives have been positively impacted and affected because Job answers these big, important questions. Was that like, I wonder what Job would say. Like, I wonder if you were to have a conversation with Job right now, mm. would he say, yeah, it was really terrible at the time, but looking back on it now, it was all worth it. And I think he would say and, yes. <clears throat> and this is obviously taking a step further. Who knows how interactions work in, in heaven right now or, you know, where um, we always residing. But um, I think of the, the, yeah, the difference of perspective where Job is now, where, I mean, he has access to all the knowledge that that God wants to give him about what happened. And I'm pretty sure there can be a pretty simple explanation where it just clicks for Job. He says, Oh yeah, that all does make sense now. 100%. Yeah. Yeah. I agree with that. Okay. So let's talk about that. And there's other examples too, but let's talk about this one. um, This one last one. No, I think this is interesting. This is another sort of contested one. Um, So very beginning of Genesis, we have this really, well, actually end of end of Genesis one, but yes, very beginning of Genesis. We have this, Interesting phrase where God, it, it's it's like he seems to be talking to someone and he says, let us make man in our image. And, you know, Christians for, for, for you know, millennia now want to kind of be like sharpshooters and look at that and say, see, it's real simple, yeah. right? The Trinity has been in the Bible all of this time. And, Michael Heiser has made the point that it, it, well, it, it's kind of weird, isn't it? Like, why do we have this direct conversation between the Trinity? Like, they're of one mind, of one accord. Like, there are other scenes where we have, again, the angel of the Lord and Yahweh conversing, but, like, it's usually a third-party thing. They're not just talking to each other. There's other people, like, witnessing the conversation and, like, taking place, like, taking part in it. We have this weird thing where it's, like, the Trinity talking to each other, uh, Heiser doesn't think it's that way, though. Yeah, it, and in fact, and based on it's kind of the lead up. I think if we started with this, it would seem very far fetched. But with everything that we've explored, that the Bible says quite plainly, at least in my opinion, um, it, it, the fact of the matter is that he already had his um, spiritual family with him, the sons of God with him, and in fact, he's speaking in front of the divine council, and who knows how many um, other Elohim saying, "Hey." Um, let, you know, let's make man in our image. Um, but um, there's only one person that uh, partakes, one being that partakes in the creation, Steve. Yes, that's exactly right. So, um, you know, the, the way that Heiser kind of looks at it is um, like, let's say you were going to get together with friends and like go grab a pizza mm-hmm. or whatever. You might say, hey, let's go get some pizza. But only one of you is going to drive there. The rest of you are just going to kind of be you know, you're going to kind of watch it, it happen. And you might think, well, that you're making that up. That's kind of arbitrary. Well, it actually kind of makes sense because later in Job, we find when God is talking to Job, we find a reference to God creating the world. And when this happens, the, the, the terms that are used are when the sons of God shouted for joy and the morning stars sang together. Okay. Mm-hmm. So, um, again, this goes into more of the weird stuff, Wait, which is why we have this podcast. <laughs> here's the strange stuff, yes. Thank God, here's the strange stuff. So, turns out, right, we, we've we already kind of covered in, in previous episodes that the, the, the phraseology, son, sons of God, in the Old Testament is 
directly pointing to spiritual beings. Again, this has been like millennia of biblical scholarship has, has pretty much confirmed this. Okay, so sons of God basically means spiritual beings of some sort. Okay, this is an instance in the Bible of Hebrew parallelism. So in, in poetic language and parallelism, there's one kind of uh, parallelism is called synonymous parallelism. And so what, what that means is whatever is mentioned in phrase A, it's being restated. It's the same idea mm-hmm. being restated a little bit differently in phrase B. So when the sons of God shouted for joy, shouted for joy, and the morning stars sang together. So Hebrew parallelism creates a, a connection between the sons of God and the morning stars. Okay, now that might not make sense until you understand, and this is another... We need to do a whole episode of this. Just make a mess a little right now. Okay. In the ancient world, they didn't know, okay, that stars were balls of gas. Like, we know that now. That was not a thing that was known in the ancient world. And so in the ancient world, when they looked up at the night sky and they saw all these stars, what they would do, and and it's a little bit unclear whether or not they would physically look at these beings and and say and and look up at the shiny thing and say that right there is a spiritual being but at the very least at the very least it's pretty much incontestable that one would look at the stars and 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 see them as being representative of the spiritual beings um again i think they would actually look up there and they would see them because they could see them moving around like they Mm. could see activity in the night sky i think it would actually be accurate to say or at least it could be accurate to say that they actually saw those stars and they thought of them as spiritual beings so so what what was being written and being communicated here is the sons of God shouted for joy, the morning stars sang together. Basically, the spiritual beings witnessed God create everything, form the foundation of the world, create man, create the garden and all of that, and were happy about it and rejoiced with God. Mm. And so it makes sense for Yahweh to be in the beginning and saying, looking around and saying, let us make man in our image. Now, now that's weird too. This idea of an image, and this could be another whole episode, but the idea (laughs) of the image of God. Okay. So, um, one distinction that Heiser would want to make is thinking about being in the image of God versus being made as the image of God. You see, because historically we've wanted to tie the image of God to something like, you know, being a rational animal, right. To like actually being able to think logically and, and, and things like that. Uh, various things. Well, what Heiser suggests is that that's actually not how imaging language worked in the ancient world at all. So like, that's another thing. Side note, please don't let me forget the main point that I was wanting to make. But a side note is that Israel was an ancient culture. And so they had a lot of ideas that were radically different from their ancient Near Eastern neighbors. um, But a lot of ideas that were very similar. Okay. So like a lot of the uh, law codes that you find written in the New Testament, or excuse me, in the Old Testament, you can find similar law codes in other places. Mm-hmm. Okay, the idea of a divine council. Every ancient culture had a divine had a divine council. So it would actually be very weird to look at the biblical worldview and say there's not a divine council. Like the council operates differently, but like in the Canaanite divine council, the high god was El, and the the being under him was was Baal. Okay, or Baal, depending on how you want to say it. So. Another concept like that is imaging. Okay, so the idea of something being made as the image of God, Pharaoh was the image of the sun god, Ra or Re. Again, however you want to put that. So, so note that like these ideas are like they have a context for what they are. Like we didn't just like make them up. And so, 
in this same sense, let us make man in our own image, okay? It's not as though, like, uh, the image of God in that sense was not something that, you know, that, that spiritual beings didn't have access to. Spiritual beings are also imagers of God. We're imagers of God. They are imagers of God. We obviously have a little bit different role and a different hierarchy, which we're going to talk about, um, but we're all imagers of God. So that's why let us make man in our <clears throat> own image. That makes That still makes sense. That's going to be a, a great episode because we definitely will do one on that. That'll be great. But one thing that uh, um, I find pretty uh, neat as well is we see throughout the Bible, and I'm thinking especially at the end of uh, Job where um, God kind of goes on this um, great um, uh, this great speech about basically how powerful he is and how little Job knows. Mm-hmm. And I know there's more to it than that, but um, he— it seems like we see time and time again, um, God enjoys telling people what he's going to do or what he has done, whether it's with Noah, whether it's with Job, but it's, we see it through the whole Bible. So to me, it just logically makes sense at the beginning where he's speaking aloud and saying, hey, I'm going to do this. Let's make man in our image. And I just yeah. think it seems to follow through the pattern that we see through the whole scriptures. Yeah, that's a really good point. I never actually, I don't think I ever thought about that. Yeah, God kind of, uh, in a sense, announces His plans, sort of, and, yeah, and he, he, he just kind of that. invites us to, um, invites us to participate in that way. So, yeah, that's a good point. Okay, so uh, let's start wrapping this thing up with arguably the most yes. important point uh, of all, and and that is that um, when you look at the logic of the Divine Council worldview, it places like it's so much deeper. When it comes to the mission of Jesus, the way I put it is that the mission of Jesus takes on a much larger role uh, because we like to talk about this idea of like, of, of, of so we think about Christianity in terms of um, a very, a very practical sense, which it is practical. Like, don't get me wrong. I mean, like my grandmother didn't know anything of what we're talking about. And yet she was a Christian, right? She loved the Lord or whatever, but, but most people can't talk about Christian theology much deeper than God created the world. We fell into sin. God wanted to redeem mankind, so he died on the cross to save us from our sins and so that we could live in heaven with God for all eternity. And I want to suggest to you that, like, if you can express that, that's enough to be saved. Amen. Like, nothing there was wrong. But it's probably about a third of, like, the full picture of the of the redemption story. And what's actually happening. And that goes back a little bit to the three rebellions we talked about in the last episode. Um, But really understanding that the mission of Jesus is actually about defeating the powers of darkness. It's not just about saving us from our sins. It's about Jesus becoming king, dethroning the rulers of darkness and taking his rightful place on the throne. Yeah, absolutely. It's a, and what we have here is a, it's a matter of allegiance. So we all think about and and there obviously is a, a coming point where you you do turn your life to Christ, not diminishing mm-hmm. that at all. But we tend to think of it as that, and then and then we leave it at that, and then we try to live our best. But and and we know that we're followers of Christ, but we never think about the ongoing spiritual battle or what happened yeah. to to kick it all off. And you're absolutely right, as the Bible says, the King of Kings. You know, God is a king for a reason, and it, whether you express your allegiance to him or something else, or maybe you're uh, kind of lukewarm about it. You don't really think about it. And again, like what you just said, you don't need to know all of this necessarily, but it's helpful to place into perspective just how, um, just how the spiritual forces of evil and good 
actually work and that in the end Christ yeah. will come up on top. And I think it's good to place your allegiance wholly on him. Yeah. Well, it's like the, you know, uh, again, the way that the late Dr. Heiser would put it, he used the term believing loyalty. Okay. There's, there's another, um, uh, writer who, uh, and, and scholar who uses the term allegiance, uh, to, to explain this. And I think it makes sense. Salvation by allegiance alone. And uh, the idea being that like, where, are you placing your allegiance? And again, once you have this context, you go back and you look at the Old Testament. What you see is that God wanted the believing loyalty, the allegiance of people to him. Okay, it wasn't just about being saved from your sins or being the elect or like any of that Reformation context, like language that we would use. Okay, look back at the Old Testament. You've got, just off the top of my head, you've got Naaman, you've got Job, who we just talked about, mm. you've got um, um, Ruth and other examples too of of people who were not Jews by birth, right? Mm. And yet uh, Rahab uh, is another example, okay? Uh, a couple of those people, Ruth and Rahab, are both in the genealogy of Jesus, by the way, which is another interesting topic, okay? So um, these are people who placed their believing loyalty, their faith, their trust, in Yahweh and were believers of him and loyal to him and Yahweh rewarded them and many of them even made it into the hall of faith and some into mm. the genealogy of Jesus and we know from the language that's used that Naaman despite the fact that he was literally the commander of an army that was against the people of God like once Naaman got healed and he really saw what was going on and who was the king of kings and who was the true lord of lords he gave his allegiance to Yahweh and um uh, Heiser used to say that you you, you couldn't you couldn't um, earn something like how could you like if you can't lose or if you can't earn your salvation by being good how could you lose it by being bad and he pointed to David right David was a person who really 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 messed up like big time messed up as bad as you possibly could and reaped the consequences of it in multiple different ways mm -hmm. but he never traded his loyalty for another god. And that's what the Israelites kept doing in the judges and all of that. They kept trading their loyalty to Yahweh to another God. And so the idea is that salvation is a function of our allegiance to Jesus as king. And this is one final point I want to make on this, and then I'll, I'll kind of let you chime in here as well, um, is that people talk about, again, these Reformation question, you know, context questions like um, eternal security, right? Like people always want to talk about that, like once saved, always saved. Is it true? And it's a conversation. It you know it's a conversation worthy of having, but I would just rather avoid the conversation altogether by saying this: there is not a single person in heaven with God, with Yahweh, who did not want to be there. Hmm. That that's impossible. It makes no sense. Why would right? Why why would somebody yeah. be there against their will who didn't want to go? So does it can someone like lose their salvation? Does it mean they were never saved? I don't know. It's 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 kind of. It, it almost, when you think about the gospel this way, it becomes a how many angels can dance on the head of a pen kind of a question yeah. in its significance. It almost doesn't matter once saved, always saved. And I get, I know there's going to be some people who that, that rubs a couple feathers. And I, I get it. I get why you would want to say something like once saved, always saved. But the point is, nobody is in heaven who didn't want to be there. And when you think about it this way, that just makes so much more sense of, of, of the biblical material. So. I think that's well said, and I actually don't have anything to add to that point. I think you, I think you touched it very well. But our final kind of point, which this flows into, I, I have, I think it's very exciting, and 
again, we see through the whole Old Testament, hopefully you uh, see by now out of all the conversations we've had, um, the sons of God and the spiritual family that, that Yahweh's had since, well, since the beginning, at least since he created them. Mm-hmm. And it creates a picture for us of what life is like and what we're going to become, and that is the sons of God. And in a sense, we are now, once you um, place your allegiance with Christ, once you put your faith in him and accept him as your savior. Um, but even beyond that, it gives a picture of what life's going to be like, even beyond here in the spiritual world. And we become the sons of God and adopted into his family. The New Testament speaks of being adopted into the family. And once you hear that word adopted, man, does that does that really click? If you followed all the way along. Oh, because, yeah. Because when Yahweh created the sons of God in, in heaven, and obviously there are um, there are people like what Steve says, they were on his payroll and kind of defected or however you want to say it, but they were already his family right from the beginning. Mm-hmm. Yet when we accept Christ as Savior, we don't start out as his family and we become adopted. And that, that just really, um, yeah, it really makes a lot more sense of that term adopted. But yeah, it gives a picture of... Yeah of what life is like for us and how God wants us to be involved in his family. Yeah. We are adopted into the family of God such that Jesus, like the, the Bible says, the Bible says this, that Jesus looks at us and calls us brothers. Mm. And it's like, say what? Like, what are you talking about? Like, so, so, so again, the picture of, of royalty of being, and again, this is what yeah. God like, wanted in a sense in Eden, right? Like, like Eden was the perfect scenario where it was the perfect mingling and mixing of heaven and earth. And so the goal, like the, the, the goal is not to like die and go to heaven and like stand around the throne forever. The, the goal is a return back to Eden and read revelation, read Isaiah. The whole like point is a return back to a, the, the state of perfection that the garden of Eden was and so like again there's a that's a whole other topic of heaven and like what's it going to be like new heaven new earth is there going to be like technology there you know dogs and cats i happen to think the answer to that is is basically yes um i I don't think we're going to be bored for the rest of eternity in heaven um it's not going to be boring (laughs) and we're going to do more of and sing okay so there's a lot more to it um uh, than that but right the, the idea is that we actually become part of the family of god and so we we get a resurrection body now we're we're starting to dance a little bit back into like normal, right? Uh, sort of normal, like Christian theology, where we can talk about the word like glorification. Okay, we're actually going to become glorified. We're going to have these glorified bodies. We, we're going to be have a body like Jesus. We're, and Jesus is going to be able to call us his brother. And, and so it's very interesting that in the Old Testament, sons of God were was the term given to these highest members of of, of mm-hmm. God's kingly court, right? His, his council. That that's what the sons of God were. The the Bene Elohim, the sons of God, the the council of God. They made up that council. We are being welcomed into that council as new members when we become a son of God. So in the New Testament, sons of God always refers to believers who have placed their loyalty and trust in God. Mm-hmm. So we through this process become the sons of God. And this is important because again, many of the other sons of God fell, right? Now there are some, I would argue that there are some others part of God's, you know, counsel that are uh, alive today other than Jesus who are still there, but we're going to be welcomed into that. And and the the point seems to be that we are going to replace Mm. that counsel and be the sons of Yahweh 
um, instead of them. So in the Old Testament, it's all about them. They're the sons of God. It's spiritual beings. In the New Testament, we become the sons of God. And how do I know this? What, what, what biblical? You, Steve, you're making all this up. Ah, the Apostle Paul has something different to say about that, though. The Apostle Paul said, why are you guys, like, fighting on earth and getting into these <laughs> lawsuits and stuff like that and, like, hating your brother and, like, having all these problems? He said, don't you know that one day you're going to judge angels mm. and rule over angels? And that makes no sense if you don't mm. have this context. I've always wondered what that means. And everybody has yep. always wondered what that means. What does it mean that we're going to judge and rule over angels? And, and especially if you read Revelation. Oh, you can read Revelation and like, like, yeah, we're supposed to be like ruling and reigning in eternity with Yahweh. Just what and who are we ruling and reigning over? The, the judging and reigning, it, it, because we think we tend to think of again the stereotypical angels is in a sense they're kind of perfect because we just think that they follow God and are always happy and mm -hmm. do what they're told. But the the fact of reigning and judging means that there is something to judge. There's something to actually reign over, make decisions, and it yeah it makes perfect sense. Yeah, like like the speculative like okay this is probably not true, but like how cool would it be? Like like why is the universe so big? This mm. is something I've always wondered. Right? Is the okay, if the only point of the universe being what it was is to be like, yeah, that's a pretty big God. Cool. Right? Mission accomplished. I love that. I'm <laughs> cool with that. It doesn't have to go beyond that. But like, really, I kinda hope I get my own planet one day. I, I'm just saying. Mm. I would love in the in the eschaton, right, to be like, Oh yeah, you actually get to like rule over a planet and like here's your spiritual beings and like that would be awesome. But like so I mean, it's a possibility of something that that could mean yeah. to that you get to judge over and, and rule over angels. So we have a and who knows? Like like how cool would it be to find out this, this it's pure speculation. But how cool would it be to find out that like you know, our job is to kind of like not in like a negative way, but like to take place in the next cycle of this. Like like who's to say mm -hmm. that there's not another race of people in in, in some other way distant planet, what we might yeah. call an alien or something that God wants to like, like <clears throat> spend the next 6,000, 7,000, 8,000, however long it ends up being years, like doing this with them and like, like uh, crafting the salvation plan for them. And like, we can become a part of that. Like, I don't know. Like I'm, I literally have no idea. None of us have any idea, but like when you think about the words actually written in scripture about this stuff, it, it opens up so many more possibilities than what we normally think of in Christian theology. And um, I'm here for it. I mean, it makes so much more sense of the Bible. And I, I hope through this episode and the others that we've recorded that you're at least beginning to see some of the possibilities here when you look at the Bible through this lens. I think we captured pretty much everything very well, but if you have stuck around to the end and everything that Steve just suggested from the book of Steve sounds a little bit crazy, I think that, again, Steve and I, we are... I wouldn't say we have plenty of time on our hands. We have time on our hands. And yeah. we're probably going to explore some of these discussions on, we tend to think sometimes as Christians, um, oh, that that can't be. Um, there can't be other life out there. Uh, there's not going to be this. How could oh, there? Yeah. We, t we tend to block out at least the possibilities. And I think, uh, I think Steve and I will probably go through it sometime, just breaking down some of those barriers and not saying this will happen, but saying these things could possibly happen. Um, just another fun, strange, strange thing about life that we might discuss, but that's a little bit down a rabbit hole. Yeah, I would love to talk about that sometime. Different topic, but related for sure. So absolutely. Well, Steve, this was a 
a great episode. It was a longer, but I think it was uh, very full of uh, good content for for us to rehash again, and also for people mm-hmm. who are new or just kind of get familiar with our perspective on things. Um, yeah. Again, we are going to be going to smaller episodes too. We're just going to be going on some fun stuff in the Bible, but I think this was very fundamental to understand uh, the Divine Council worldview, and again, just to understand Stephen I more and where we're coming from on these issues. Agreed, and, and amen. Couldn't have said it better myself. Hey, these podcasts share through uh, word of mouth, mostly. So if yes, you um, have other people who are interested in the Bible or you think you'd like to, for them to hear this, like make sure to share it with your friends. Tell everybody you know. Share it on YouTube. You know, you have my permission. Go put it in your Facebook groups or whatever. Like Tell people about this podcast um, mm. because I think the more people that we get into thinking this way and to noticing the strange stuff in the Bible, the more people we're going to get to fall in love with the Bible. And there is no... like. On earth, what more could you hope to do than to fall in love mm-hmm. with the Bible and be energized about the very word of God? And um, so many people are not energized by it. They're bored by it, and there's no reason to be because it's really yeah. dang cool. Well, and a suggestion to that as well is depending on the church that you go to, bring it up to people in your church, friend groups, That's if right. not the church at large, friend groups, your Sunday school class, or however your church is set up, just bring it up and say, hey, follow this YouTube channel. It'll be some good discussion that we can have. So, yeah, I mean, it's... Um, again, like what Steve said, why wouldn't you want to try to figure out as much as you can about the Bible and what life is like? <laughs> 100%. 100%. All right. See you next time. See you next time.